author Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. I hope you're doing well. On this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, I'm going to be playing my interview with Patrick Williams. Today is Wednesday, July 25th. I'm saddened to inform you all. Early this morning, Patrick Williams passed away. I did this interview with him back in 2016. It was in part to promote his album, his last big band jazz album called Home Sweet Home. It is an absolutely fantastic recording. I recommend you listen to it or get a copy of it if you haven't already. If you listen to the music of Patrick Williams, you're going to see just how full of life his music was. He had a lot of credits to his name. He was an Emmy Award winner. He created tons of music for television, also some music for film. As I mentioned, he was a jazz big band leader, a composer, an arranger, a musician, a music educator, I think you're going to find in this interview, he was quite congenial and very, very knowledgeable. The world of music has lost one of its great creators. So I present this interview with Patrick Williams in his memory. Patrick Williams is an all-around musician, a composer, arranger, conductor, and music educator. It's a great pleasure. Oh, hi. Thanks. Thanks. Nice to be here, Paul. All right, so I think most stories are best from the beginning. Where are you from originally? Bonterre, Missouri, small town in southeastern Missouri. I lived in Missouri until I was, I think, about seven years old. And then my father moved to the New York area, and I essentially grew up in suburban New York. We had a house in Connecticut. So I really grew up around the New York area. And were your parents musical people? Well, I think they were in the sense that they they had a nice feeling for music. They don't they never really pursued it, but you know we went to my mother would take me to uh, symphony concerts and we'd see the Philharmonic and all of that. So she was very much into supporting me, you know, as I kind of progressed through the through the school system. And when did you start to realize that you had, in particular, a musical talent? Well, as far as that kind of thing, I, I think you, you, you could ask almost any professional musician, and they'd say pretty early. It was just something you, you... I remember when I was, I think when you are in kindergarten, they had a rhythm band or something, and I do remember that I could pick up something and just beat, beat it in time, and a lot of the other kids couldn't. So I realized it was a way for, first of all, getting attention, <laughs> which I think, you know... <laughs> But yeah, I knew early. I, I think when I was in fourth grade, I played the clarinet and the drums, and then I took up the trumpet and played the trumpet, actually, for 20, 20 years or so. Was there ever any type of reservation from your parents about you pursuing music, or was it something they supported? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, my father was a very successful businessman. And he viewed my activities in music, especially going through junior high school and high school, essentially as a hobby. And, you know, it was fine as a hobby. But when I went off and I got offered a 
full scholarship to the Eastman School of Music, he said, no, 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 you're not going to do that. You're going to go to a, a regular liberal arts college. And if you want to go to Eastman, then you can do it in graduate school, but you're not going to go there now. It's too limited an education. So I went to Duke University, and it worked out very well for me. I had a great time at Duke, and we had a great band, and I did more music in, in, at Duke than I probably could have done at Eastman. I don't know, but it worked out. So in a way, they, you know, he was supportive, and, and my mother was very supportive. But, you know, he had his own ideas about, about my uh, kind of being the whole person, you know, and not just a musician, as, as he would put it. Are you grateful that that was kind of his vision, that you, that you pursue a more liberal arts kind of education? I think that it, I certainly feel it worked out. I mean, the Duke experience was really great for me. And I got my first job in New York because I had a band at Duke that was a very good college band. In those days, it wasn't, you know, you didn't get credit for the, to play in the, in the dance band or the big band. Now it's all you know jazz ensemble. It's all part of the all part of the fabric of the of the credit system at, at the music schools. But then it was, and so we had four or five undergraduates. We had I remember a couple of guys from medical school, and then we had some pros who'd been on the road with some of the some of the bands and just decided you know they'd come back to North Carolina for a while. So it was a really good band. Plus the fact Les Brown who graduated from Duke in the in the uh, 30s, I believe it was, but he started this band they called the Duke Ambassadors. And so he when he actually, uh, I guess in the late 40s and 50s, when Les was quite popular, he, he sent, you know, half of, the, half of his book, all the arrangements that he had, to the Duke Ambassadors. So we were playing arrangements by Jay Hill and all these wonderful arrangers. So uh, the repertoire we were playing was much better much better than the normal college band would get. Around that time of your life, what kind of music did you enjoy the most? What was it that was really catching your ear? That's a little bit more complicated question because I played uh, the trumpet in, in symphony orchestra and jazz it, you know, in, in high school. So that from that time on, it was really kind of a mixture. I played in the symphony in, in, in college you know, and played in the big band. So to me, it was always kind of working both sides of the street, and I didn't see one being exclusive of the other. And some people do, but I didn't. And I've always felt that the more you kind of know and the more breadth you have as a musician, the better off you are. I feel that to this day, actually. Do you listen to a lot of music now? Yes, I do. Just as an example, I want, we have tickets to the Philharmonic, season tickets. We've had them for years. By the way, the L.A. Philharmonic is one of the world's great orchestras now, and I am not kidding you. They are just wonderful. And they played um, Bartok. They played Miraculous Mandarin, and uh, they played the uh, Viola Concerto. You know, it was just spectacular. I mean, it was, you know, I loved every minute of it. I was so glad that we were able to go to that particular concert because I hadn't heard the Miraculous Mandarin live in probably 40 years. So it was really a treat. Just of any genre of music, any type, what are the composers that you would say have had the greatest influence on you? Well, that would be a very, very long list. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, really, there, there's. I, I've always kind of subscribed to Duke Ellington's thing, where it's you know, it's about good music, and and that's what it's about. 
essentially I'm paraphrasing, but if it's good music, I, I'm all, I love it. And by that, I mean either jazz or symphonic music or, or big band swing, all of that. I, I never really cared for rock and roll. I mean, I, I could work in the medium as an arranger. I worked for some of the some of the groups like Chicago and stuff, but I'd write the string arrangements. I just felt that it was more showbiz than it was music. And you know, when it came to real music, I think I mean, I even like country and western. There's some really good songwriters in Nashville. So it just depended on, not so much on the genre, but whether or not I felt it was musical. And if it's musical, I would like it. And what kind of litmus do you use for what makes good music? What classifies it as good music to Patrick Williams? Well, I, you know, I think that, first of all, there's got to be a real commitment. You know, I tell kids when I've done clinics for years, and I'll, I'll tell them, you know, if, if, if you have to make a choice of going into business or being a lawyer and, or being a, a, in, in a doctor or a musician... I don't think you should choose being a musician because you have to have a calling to be a musician. There's so much involved in the commitment to do it. And there's a lot of ups and downs and that's a lot of, it can be a tough, tough, tough profession at times, but the people who are driven to it understand that. And to me, they, that's why they're there and that's why they produce what they do, which is, you know, excellent music whether they write it or play it or sing it. Is there a particular facet in music? At the beginning of the interview, I was listening, the things that you do as far as composing, you've recorded some albums, you've arranged, there's a lot of things that you've done. Would it be possible for you to pick the facet of music that you're the most passionate about? Depends on what which week it is. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, you know, if I'm working on a big band album of my own, I'm very passionate about it for a few months because it takes months for me to write it all. But I've written, you know, a number of pieces for symphony orchestra. I wrote a piece, years 1976, I believe it was, for symphony orchestra and jazz quartet, and I worked on it for the better part of a year. It was a very rewarding experience. I mean, it's been played uh, quite a few times in concerts, and it goes over well. And, you know, I, I've written a lot of different kinds of stuff, and I don't really try to limit myself into terms of, of thinking of a genre. I just try to make good music. And if it's with a symphony or if it's with a chamber group or if it's a big band or whatever it is, I just try to make the best of what I can do at that time with that ensemble. It was just very recently that we welcomed the songwriter Arthur Hamilton, mm -hmm. and he talked about working with you. So I wanted to know, what are your opinions on Arthur Hamilton, the songwriter and the man? What does he like to work with? Oh, Arthur's a wonderful person. I've known him for years. We've served on the uh, Motion Picture Academy Executive Committee for together for, I don't know, 25 years. And, you know, Arthur is very active here. He was president. Uh, I mean, he's, he was a, on the direct, he's a director of ASCAP. I mean, he, he's a very active guy here in terms of being involved in the profession. And in addition to being a really top, top lyricist, I mean, Arthur's a real craftsman. He understands how to really write the kind of lyrics that I like anyway. And he teaches it. He can. He teaches lyric writing. So how he he really understands the craft of it all to a very high degree. 
and I really appreciate that. And as far as working together, he writes the words, and I write the music, and that's it. We don't go into, uh, well, can you change this or do this or whatever. We we might make a mutual decision or something, but, uh, you know, he does his thing and I do mine, and it seemed to work out pretty well a lot of times. On your most recent album, he co-wrote a couple of songs with you. Yeah, he did. I was hoping you could tell us about the, the song that features the late Frank Sinatra Jr. on it. He did write that, and it was written, I think we wrote it a few years ago, and it was when I was doing that album, I had I just worked with Frank Jr., and we became pretty close friends. And I just called and said, I'm doing an album. Can you, you, can you sing a duet? You know, would you do it? And he said, sure. So I called Tierney Sutton, who's a wonderful singer. And then I thought, well, what tune am I going to do? And then I went through my, you know, I've got a book of my songs. And I saw, you know, I've been around. And I thought that would really make a good duet. So that's the, way, that's the way it wound up being there. Tell us a little bit about Frank Sinatra Jr. What kind of man was he? You know, he was quite a complex guy. I've known him for years, and I didn't see him for a number of years, but I knew him maybe 30, 40 years. I don't know. We were close to the same age. And in the last few years, I was around him a lot. I mean, my copyist, Terry Woodson, was his conductor. When I worked with his father uh, on the duets albums, I think it was in the middle uh, 90s, you know, 94, 95 in there. He was around a lot for that, and... I've always been close to Sinatra. Not only got a chance to work with him, but I mean, those recordings he made, the Capitol years and all, just made such an impression upon me. Everything was so great about him. I mean, it wasn't his singing was wonderful. The studio was great. The bands were great. The arranging was great. I mean, it hit it hit all cylinders. So I had a you know always had an admiration for him. And and when Junior and I started to work together. You know, I uh, I realized that his son had very high standards, and he knew what was going on. He, Frank Jr. was a freaking uh, encyclopedia of popular music. I mean, he really was, and he knew, he knew a lot about it and had a lot of opinions about it. And, you know, we really got along great. I mean, he, you know, he's an interesting guy. He could be, uh, we had a very relaxed relationship. So I saw a side of him that I thought he's a really nice person, genuinely. He could be, if you didn't know him well, he could be kind of standoffish. I know, I saw him do it. Because he, I can imagine what it would be like to be Frank Sinatra's son. No, actually I can't. But at any rate, he, you know, there's a plus and a, and, a, and a minus to that, as you can probably imagine. But I thought he handled it really well. Our special guest is Patrick Williams. I was hoping you could tell all of us about recording the Sinatra Duets albums. What are your most vivid memories from that experience? Well, there, if you've got an hour, <laughs> I'll try <laughs> to cut it down. It was really one of the experiences, I think, that was so intense that I'll remember it forever. Jobs come and go. But there was a particular time in his life, first of all. He was 77 years old, and they convinced him to do a to an album of duets where he wouldn't have to sing with the other singers he would he could do his stuff and then we'd do with the technology we we'd make duets out of them and that was quite common it wasn't like we were breaking any new ground i mean a lot of duets were made where the singers weren't in the same room at the same time 
So there wasn't any real breakthrough about it, but he, you know, he was he was a little bit apprehensive about how that was going to work, and so he he took on the said, okay, I'll do it, but he had total creative control. So if at any point he decided he didn't want to do it, it was over, and so I was kind of in a position of not exactly auditioning, but I knew I was the heat was on because I wanted this thing to work. We booked the band. I went into Capitol. A, which is where he made so many great records. I took almost two days to rehearse something like 35 or 40 arrangements. And even rehearsing those charts, I mean, it was really a moving experience. I mean, I was hearing all this music that I'd heard when I was a kid. I've got you under my skin, you name it, you know. And so then when he walked in to actually sing, the whole band was sitting there. And he came over to me at the podium, and he says, I, he says, I got no reed. And I said, what? He said, I've got no reed. I, and he meant his throat was, you know, he had a sore throat, and he couldn't sing. So that was over. We, he left. And a couple of days later, he came back, and we, same deal. We had the whole band, 55-piece orchestra, sitting there in Capitol. And he went, and he sat, and they showed him a booth that they'd built for him. And I, I was told the booth was, you know, $30,000. It was like a little living room. It had a microphone and it had a couch and a, a little chair and a desk and stuff. And I was standing next to Bill Miller, who was his longtime pianist. And as Frank walked into that booth, and he didn't, he wasn't in there five seconds. He walked out and he says to Bill, who was standing next to me, he says, Bill, he says, I'm not going to sing in there. I want to sing out in the room with the band which he always did. He sang with the band. Anyway, the, the point is, nobody had thought, what if he doesn't like the booth? Hmm. So where are they going to put a mic for him? And nobody had thought about that either. And so these two kind of young techies guys are trying to figure out where to hang a mic. And Frank is sitting on a riser next to the trumpet section. And they have no idea where they're going to hang it. Well, I'm, I'm looking at him. And I know I'm thinking about one thirty seconds more of this, and he's gone. You know, he's not gonna stick around for this. And he was thirty seconds, almost to the almost to the minute, he was gone. And now, then there was this big meeting at Capitol. You know, they they decided they, they Al Schmidt, who's a great engineer, decided he found this mic and that didn't have any leakage. If there was any leakage, we couldn't do duets at all. So we had to find some way that his voice was isolated. And Al found this microphone that was, sounded great, but, you know, it didn't leak. And so that was good. And then he came in, same deal, the whole orchestra's there. He came in, walked up to the music stand, sat down, and he's looking through all of these songs he's going to sing. And it's about two minutes before we started. We started rec recording at 6 o'clock at night. And he looks at me and he says, shoot, let's go shoot. He said it three times. Shoot. <laughs> I said, okay. So I kicked off uh, Come Fly With Me, I think it was. And he st he started roaring into that song with such enthusiasm and geez, it's just, I mean, he sang eight bars and I, man, I thought, I mean, I mean well, I'm not believing this. Am I, this is some kind of dream or something because he sounded great. And he sang, they were hoping to get maybe 14 tunes. He sang 29 songs in three days, and they had enough for two albums of his vocals. He was really, I mean, he, and he was, looking, he was loving it. He was loving the playbacks. He was enjoying the band. I mean, he was, it meant a lot to me that he was enjoying it so much.
and uh, we went out to dinner after the dates were six to nine. At nine o'clock, we'd go out to dinner at it's La Dolce Vita, it's an Italian restaurant in Beverly Hills. And there would be three or four or five of us, you know, and, and Frank was in a good mood. He's telling stories about being on the road with Tommy Dorsey. He's t- I mean, he was, it was just absolutely wonderful. So it was for me and for Al Schmidt, uh, it was a really an, a great, memorable experience for both of us. Some of the duet partners are kind of unexpected. You wouldn't necessarily think right away of Frank Sinatra and Jimmy Buffett doing a duet. Yeah. Well, that was Phil. I had nothing to do with the duet partners. Phil Ramon produced it. And Phil, I'd known Phil, look, I've known Phil since I first went to New York. I mean, I'd known him, he was like a brother to me. And Phil got to be one of the top producers in the record business for years. And, and you know, so he knew what was going on. And he had, the idea was that, Frank, we wanted to rejuvenate his catalog. I mean, which this album did. The first album came out, so three million, I think it was. And it rejuvenated his entire catalog. But it wasn't just a jazz audience. We didn't, that wasn't what was. So he had quite a variety of, of singers that did duets with him. And Phil just happened to mention to me in passing, I said, how do you, do you think everybody is, how are you going to get these singers? And he says, you know, he said, believe me, they'll be standing in line. I just have to pick them. You know? <laughs> so it wasn't a problem getting anybody. They all wanted to sing with them. Was there a song that you felt in particular was a shining example on the albums? Well, from my point of view, some of the, you know, the, we started with his arrangement. Some of the duets were made where I just do a bridge or I'd modulate and do another thing. We, we brought back the band and I rearranged some things so they'd work as duets. But one of the, one of the arrangements that really I took a, a lot of time on was with Barbara Streisand. They did a duet of I've Got a Crush on You. Barbara, I'd worked with Barbara a number of times, but, you know, and she's pretty finicky, and she wanted to hear the demo. And so I did two or three demos where I'd bring in a couple of singers, and she'd get the idea of how it goes. Well, finally she approved it, and uh, we went in uh, and and recorded it with a really nice-sized orchestra. I think it was 65, 70 people. And it was really, she did a great job. I mean, she sang it great. And we'd already had his vocal recorded, so she was in her headset, she was hearing him. And it was just like she was singing with him. And it really felt that way. And it was very, very moving. It was a wonderful, wonderful uh, performance. So, And we got nominated for Grammy, so that even made it better. We're talking with Patrick Williams. You also recorded this album, Sinatra Land. Mm-hmm. What were you hoping to achieve with that album? You know, uh, after we did the duets albums, which did well, I mean, very well. The first one came out, everybody, Capital was thrilled. I mean, so my stock was high, you know, if you know what I mean. And I asked, uh, Susan Reynolds was Sinatra's uh, publicist. And I said, Susan, you know, I'd like to do a big, big band tribute to Frank. You know, and I can get, I'd like to do it with all some really great jazz soloists so that the melodies matter. It's not just going to be a bunch of hot, big band licks. I want the melodies to matter, and I'll get the best in the business. So she took me up to Capitol. We went up to the top floor of the Capitol Tower, and this is an interesting P.S. because I walked in, and, I, and, then, and the executive there said, Hey, I hear, I, Pat, I hear you've got this great idea. And I said, Well, he said, So what is it? And I said, It's a 
it's a big band tribute to Frank, and I want to use some really top solos. And he says, I love it. I absolutely love it. He said, can you bring it in for 150000 I said, yeah, I think so. He says, this is great. He said, Susan, thanks so much for bringing this to me. And uh, he said, you know, this is just going to be wonderful. So that was literally the meaning. I mean, I don't know if that was two minutes, you know. And I was, the next thing I know, I was in the elevator going down. And I, you know, I I'd had a lot of meanings at that point in my life. And I thought, what in the world? I never had a meaning like that. And then it occurred to me before I hit the, the ground floor of Capitol, it just came to me and I, oh, I get it. Frank made a call. That's what happened. He made a call. And he, you know, and, they, and then he sent me a nice note. You know, we got a picture together at the date. He signed it with a very affectionate thing. And then he, when we actually recorded the album, We'd finish it, the recording, and, and he had a limo. He was still alive, this living in Malibu. And he had a limo there to pick up what we recorded that day so he could hear it. And, you know, he loved it. So there was more to it than probably you wanted to hear, but that it was a very special kind of a thing. It really was. And it was special for the band. It was, it was a lot of fun. Of all of the albums that you have recorded, is there one that is more or less nearest and dearest to your heart? No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, they're all like children, you know, and any any writer will tell you that. It's just a matter of which day it is or what comes to mind or something. But I can, you know, all the albums that I've made were special to me, uh, every single one of them. And so I to pick one out at all is, is probably the last one I did. You know, the last one I thought was really worked out great. You know, I want to do another one, but I'm not quite ready to, you know, it took me a year to write that last one. And then, you know, that's all the business side of it, organizing the distribution and the money and all that kind of thing. It's not just writing the music. So when I do an album, it's kind of a, a big commitment. But at the end of the day, I really, I really enjoyed it. And so the band loved it. I mean, everybody had a great time and it was a lot of fun. That last album, Home Sweet Home. Al Schmidt said on this program that that was the best-sounding album that he had ever recorded. Yeah, well, it sounds unbelievable. Al, you know, that's funny you mentioned that because I'm going to record this Saturday and I've got it working with a singer named Laura Pausini. She's a big, big star. But anyway, I'm doing a Christmas album with her with a pretty good-sized orchestra and stuff. And, of course, Al's going to do it, and we'll be at Capitol. And, you know, at this point, I just can't imagine going into to do an album of any kind and not having Al there. I mean, he just, he and I are just connected at the hip almost. I mean, it's just, he's so much a part of the way things wind up sounding. He's just a consummate engineer. And he, you know, he reads my mind and I kind of read his and we just all have, we just look at each other and we know, okay, that's the take. We don't have to do another one. And it's that kind of communication when you just know each other very, very well. You've accomplished so many things in the world of music. Is there any dream that has yet remained unfulfilled that you hope to? Hmm. You know, I was thinking uh, yesterday when I went to the Philharmonic, and I got very inspired. And I thought, you know, I think the next one is, I'm going to write something. I've got a number of pieces for symphony orchestra. And essentially, they're just sitting on a shelf. I mean, I've got good recordings of them. But when I did them, I premiered them and I conducted and all that. 
but I've never really promoted them. I've never gotten them to, you know, Gustavo Dudamel or anybody. And I thought, you know, I got to get off my duff here and, and start getting that stuff out because the sound of the symphony orchestra is just so magical to me. And, and I'm, I'm going to either get somebody to help me promote it or get it to get a publisher to help me do it or write a new, some new piece that I can come up with. I thought if I could get a really great soloist, I, I might write a concerto. Anyway, you asked, so that's the answer. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking about anyway. Do you think that jazz and, I guess you could say, American songbook-type songs, not just the songs from that era, but people who are kind of writing in that vein, do you think that this type of music is going to survive? Yeah, I do. I, I think it will not only survive, It'll there's a cyclical quality to some things. You know, they go out of style, they come back into style, because primarily because somebody gets a hit record. So... I mean, I remember in, in, God, I think it was the mid-70s when the uh, technology, when the synthesizers were coming in and all of that, you know, the, a lot of people were thinking that the symphony orchestra, the European classical tradition, the way that you, uh, movies had been scored for years by some really great musicians like Alfred Newman and Max Steiner and, and, and you know, and Goldsmith and John Williams, all these people, that tradition was dying. And this is in the 70s. And then what happened was, John did Star Wars, and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, he, he did Star Wars with the London Symphony, and all of a sudden, everybody's now the symphony's the way to go. So far from dying, it had a major resurgence because Star Wars was probably the biggest hit of the decade. You know, I just thought that was pretty funny, and I was glad to see it happen. So that's just an example of what could happen. Well, you mentioning John Williams, it makes me wonder of your colleagues, of the composers that you had know and that you work with and that you've encountered and some that you haven't, who would you say is the cream of the crop today? Well, it depends a little bit on, on the style of, of music. It, sometimes it's apples and oranges, you know. You can't really compare. And when I first came out here, it was 1969, and I got a movie to do, and, and Hank Mancini actually recommended me. And for a few years, I had an office up in his suite of offices. And then I met Lionel Newman, who was running the music at Fox, and did a movie over there, and, and became very tight with Lionel. And, and I met Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams and became friends with both of them. And we were around each other every day. You know, was a, there was a kind of family feel to the studio scene then. And the studios were kind of not what they were, but they weren't totally gone. I mean, it, it, so it was, it was a very clubby kind of feel and i you know i remember that very well and then through them i met other composers and you know at this point i think there's so many good young composers that are doing great work tom newman comes to mind for sure but at any rate i, I think the future's in good hands what is the best thing about being patrick williams <laughs> boy that's a that's kind of a out of left field <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I'm very fortunate. I, you know, I, I, I've been able to do what I essentially love doing and, and be successful at it. I've got, you know, enough money to live comfortably and, and, and I'm still working. I'm still writing. I write every day. And if I'm not working on a project, I'm writing some concert piece or something. So just to be able to, uh, to do what I do, I think is, is, I mean, I've got a, 
five acres here in Brentwood, and and my office is up little little house is up on a hill, completely isolated. All I look is I don't see trees is all I see here, and you know it really is it's it's really a, a wonderful way to live. I mean, I just I'm very very grateful that I have this way of living right now. If a young person who was interested in composing or arranging or any facet of music came to you and said, what would you be your biggest piece of advice? What would you say to them? First of all, you never get there. I would, I would suggest to them that there is no there. Some people think, well, when I get an Academy Award, I'm there. Or I get a, a Grammy, or I do this, or I do that. It doesn't work like that. There is no there. You just have to keep growing and getting better if you can and, and take advantage of everything that can come your way and, and keep some perspective on your life because depression is, is not a good thing. And there are going to be some ups and downs, so you're going to have to roll with some of that. I mean, there's not a, a composer in Hollywood that hasn't had a movie score thrown out. I mean, I know that. So, you know, you can't let the, the odd thing that goes wrong derail the whole train. You know, just keep try to keep moving forward, get around some good mentors. Mentoring is a big deal, and try to pick really good people to mentor you. If you can get to know them, that's the best thing I would advise. What do you suggest that someone should do when they're facing an extreme obstacle? Real strong adversity. Mm-hmm. Roll with the punches. You know, you, there are some things that you're just not going to be able to control. And it's very difficult to go through this. I remember doing a movie. It was a big movie, too. By that, I mean, it was big stars and all that. And, you know, the producer came up to me and, and he said, listen, I want to talk to you. And he said, come into my office. And he, and he closed the door and he said, listen, I got a lot of respect for this director and all, but he doesn't know shit about music. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> so, and I said, what do you mean? He said, so I want you to write what you want. Don't listen to this guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And I Boy, what do you mean? And then I walked out of his office. Oh, you don't listen to him. I mean, he's the director for crying out loud. So, you know, he had very specific ideas about the music, and uh, you know, it, it was it, it was very difficult because the two of them just didn't didn't talk about music in a way that was com- compatible, and it was a it was a very difficult experience. But you know, the score worked out pretty well, and all as well as ended well. But I. It was just, that's one idea. I couldn't control that. You know, I, I can't make them get along. <laughs> you know, it, wasn't my, it wasn't my job to do that. I mean, so there can be that, or there can be times where I remember I, I wrote a big symphonic score to a Western. It went really well during the dates. We recorded it out in Universal. I remember it was very rare that musicians in this town applaud anything. I mean, they're busy every day playing, you know, all kinds of stuff. But I remember very clearly that there were three or four cues that I wrote for that Western where the band actually, the orchestra, 75 people, you know, actually applauded after they played the cue. I've never had that before or since. So it was a very special experience. Well, and two weeks after I recorded the score, the guy that runs the music at, at Universal called me in and he said, you know, Pat, you know, it's a magnificent score. Everybody, you know, was really, really, really impressed with it. And I said, well, that's great. He said, but... And I knew a butt was coming. He said, but they think the score is too big for the movie. And they want to score it with like a little chamber group with a harmonica and a ethnic flute and a banjo. I was just absolutely devastated. I mean, you, what? 
And so I didn't have any control over that either. That one really hurt me. I mean, uh, I, it was a number of months before I got over it. And I don't know if I ever really did completely over it, but I mean, it, that, that kind of stuff ha- can happen, and it does happen. And it happens to the best of people. I mean, you just don't know sometimes what you're walking into, and, and you have to just deal with whatever you can. This is a very open-ended question. For anyone who is listening to this, what would you say to them? You mean like musicians listening to this? Musicians, or, or... regular folks. <laughs> if you could well, call non-musicians regular folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, first of all, anybody considering a career in music has really got to give that some serious thought because it's a very difficult, demanding competitive profession and you know just just if you're mentally ready and you want to learn and you want to grow and you think you can take it on then it can be so rewarding but it also could be extremely frustrating very circumstantial quixotic there can be a lot of things that you know if they don't go totally right that you know you're in trouble and you just have to balance it all out but having said that i wouldn't have done i wouldn't do anything else if i really wanted to do it i mean i would go for it That'd be my opinion. That would be my advice. Tell all the listeners about your website. Where can they learn more and maybe listen to some more samples of your music? It's Patrick Williams Music, patrickwilliamsmusic.com. And it's a, it's a pretty good website. I know uh, this Jason, who was my engineer, works with me every day. He helped put it up, build it, and get it up there. But it's got some information on me and some of the things I've been working on and, you know, the usual kinds of things. So if they wanted to go on there and they were interested, there's also some music that they could listen to. And there are links to other sites on YouTube where you can hear certain things if you want to. So that, that was what, that's what I would suggest. So again, that's PatrickWilliamsMusic.com. I think so. My last question, who is Patrick Williams? In your own words. Well, I think that I'm a, a musician. You know, I think that on my tombstone, they can just put Patrick Williams, musician. I think that covers it. You know, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Williams, I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us your story and tell us all about the work that you've done through the years. It's very inspiring. Thanks. It was, it was, a, it was fun for me, too. All right. Well, Godspeed, and hopefully our paths will cross again. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Thanks. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.